This episode is brought to you by Grip Equipment, the world's premier disc golf bags. For 10% off the AX4, BX2, CS2, and G-Series bags, use the promo code THEFLIGHTDIARY at checkout. I've personally used a grip bag for almost a decade now, and I can guarantee you it is a phenomenal piece of disc golf equipment. Head on over to grip-eq.com. Promo code ends on November 16th. You're listening to The Flight Diary, an intimate collection of stories, theories, and thoughts from the world of professional disc golf. I'm your host, Brian Earhart. Joining me on this week's episode is my friend and fellow left-handed road warrior, Chris Clemens. Currently known for having one of the most impressive power sidearms in the game, the backstory he gives me is full of self-discovery and an obvious desire to always continue learning and growing on and off the course. Enjoy. In that, I don't know how old I was in that picture, probably like... You look like two or three. Yeah. Maybe two. Like two or three. I honestly don't remember like, I don't think a lot of people do from when they were that young. But one of my first memories, I was probably like four or five. And I remember walking like the the picture that I have is I'm walking in front of my house, like on the sidewalk and I'm walking away from my house. And I guess I had tried to run away. <laughs> <laughs> First memory, <laughs> rebelliousness. Yes. I mean, but as you as you move forward in your life and you <clears throat> grew up as like an elementary school kid, that mm-hmm. that kind of age, what kind of child were you? What influenced you? Like what interested you? Um I was very uh animated. My older stepsister used to tell me that. I was animated, <laughs> um I was very energetic. Um I love being around people. I played a ton of sports ever since I was little. I would definitely get into trouble. I remember many times like at daycare when my mom would pick me up, I was like in the the green seat, which is I was in trouble. Animated is such a funny way of of being described as a child. I was described as colorful. And we all know that that means you're a little, you know. (laughs) A little loony. (laughs) Yeah, you're a little loony, you know. (laughs) You're you're wholesome, but you're a little bit loony. Yeah, you do weird things. um, So, I mean... What was what was childhood like for you? Did you have a lot of friends? Did you live in the country? Did you live in a neighborhood? What was what was child life like for you? Um, so I was born and raised in Joplin, Missouri, and it's a town in southwest Missouri, probably like two and a half hours south of Kansas City. It probably has like fifty or sixty thousand people, so pretty pretty good town. And um, I loved growing up. Like my mom, she had some boyfriends and then she she got married a couple different times, but she was always very loving. And I had other brothers, not including Andrew. And like we all competed against each other um, and I played sports growing up. So I was definitely like after school, you know, when I was younger, I would ride my bike home. And then like sometimes my mom would just be like, be back before dark. And so you just ride your bike all all night. And so I was pretty uh kind of always moving and going, I feel like. Living in the Midwest and living in I guess Missouri mm-hmm. especially, you mentioned this freedom of of just being able to ride your bike out, you know, late at night. And yeah. That you know, you, you don't usually get that anymore. So then as you got older, like you said you played a lot of sports and what were the role of sports in your life? Did you just like playing them? Did you dream of being a professional athlete? Like what influenced you sports-wise as you were growing up? Um, well, I was raised as a Yankees fan uh, by my father, and I don't know why he chose them. Very strange, but yes. yeah, okay. And then, because he's from Joplin as well, and then he also loved the Packers. We would go to Royals games every summer. I actually played baseball up until... Maybe I was like 10 or something because my older brother, he decided to stop playing. So I kind of followed in his footsteps. And then back when I was 12, I was like, I need to play again. And then when I was 14, I won a state championship in baseball. We hosted an NABF tournament, which is like we had teams from, I think, New York and California in Joplin. And it was kind of a hot spot because our high school had won a couple of state championships. And, uh, so baseball was huge when I was growing up. I picked up basketball like kind of in middle school, mm-hmm. um, but baseball was always big. And all I did was I just wanted to play baseball. And so, yeah, I definitely dreamed about, 
you know, being a major leaguer. So that so that was part of your childhood. You Definitely. were because there are some kids that played little league. You know, it wasn't for them, but they still played because their friends played it. Right. But you loved baseball. Yes. Yes, I loved baseball and really all sports. I played mm-hmm. hockey with my brother. I played football, um, but basketball and baseball were the ones that I actually played in like high school and stuff like that. I have been told by a lot of baseball players that get into disc golf that baseball has a lot of crossover mental game bits that you can pick up from baseball pretty easily. Was that something that you paid attention to as a kid? Do you feel it like as a disc golfer now that does it for a living? Do you feel like there was crossover skills, you know, that came from baseball mentally? Yeah, yeah. And I probably like didn't really realize it at the time, but yeah, the mental aspect of sports has been huge in my life. And so I've been able to kind of adapt that to disc golf. But I played ball golf as well growing up. Okay. And the thing was, I would have played in high school, but it was the same season as baseball. Oh, you had one of those high schools. Yeah. So ours were always separate seasons. So yeah. You were able to do that if you Yeah, I wish, I wish it would have been in the fall, and then I probably would have. But my grandpa, that's kind of who I learned golf from, and he would golf three times a week, uh-huh. um, probably for like 20 or 30 years, like my whole life until he passed away. I would go out and caddy for him when I was very young. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of learned that too and that's definitely helped with this golf did he ever give you any like grandfather advice in the game of golf did he give you any tips that resonated with you as you've gotten older probably something like don't be an idiot yeah (laughs) some true grandfather advice have you touched a frisbee yet at that point in your life i had i actually don't like remember vividly like the very first time Mm -hmm. but i remember you know who introduced me to it and his name's aaron lewis and he's still really good, and he lives in Colorado mm-hmm. now, and we actually text every day. But he, his mother introduced him, mm-hmm. and then he introduced all of us, all of our friends in high school, and I think it was my junior year. Okay. And then we kind of started playing, and that was terrible. Like, you play, started playing disc golf right away, or was it ultimate or catch? No, or... no ultimate, uh, no, no catch. I didn't, like, throw a catch frisbee for a while. Wow, so you were straight in. Yeah. So opposite from how I, how right. I started. That's so right. cool. Yeah. yeah. So then you find it in high school, and a lot of times when you start playing disc golf in high school, you, you're frolfing pretty hard. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Every day. Yeah. So so what was your frolf experience like in high school? Did you have multiple discs? Like, what were you doing? Uh, so I remember one of my first discs that I really loved was a first-round buzz. Ooh, good choice. Yeah, yeah. And so this was probably like 2000 and five i i thought you were gonna say that your first disc was like a champion ape or something like that because usually that's how a lot of people start well that was the buzz was one of the first discs that i like really that i can remember on that i had in my bag but my first disc that i like fell in love with was a champion orc okay there you go yeah (laughs) now it comes out the truth comes out yes and so for a while there i only played with a purple champion orc and then i had it was yellow i think it was an aurora ms also a very good disc, yes. underrated. Okay. And so I just had those two discs mm-hmm. when I first started, and I called them the Kobe Combo. Beautiful. That's, yeah. li- that's like the perfect frothing <clears throat> lingo. That's like the best way to hang out. You have your two yeah. discs, your friends. Amazing. You're playing froth now. You know, you're just kind of chucking around a park with a couple discs. Yeah, shooting like 20 over. Yeah. <laughs> Were you keeping score back then? Uh, I remember one of the first times I kept score. I shot like 22 over, and this is a really easy course. So I was really bad. My my next question is, you know, what did you do after high school? Did you go to college? Like, what, what was your, your path after you graduated? So I graduated in 2006 from high school. Then I took a year off. Basically, I was just kind of like, I mean, looking back on it now, I'd be like I was lost, basically. Like, I was okay. kind of trying to find who I was. And a lot of my friends, like, went to um, the University of Arkansas. Mm-hmm. They went to Mizzou. So I was kind of trying to figure that out. And then I met a girl while I had known her all throughout high school. And we moved to Arkansas together. And I went to a community college there. Yeah, that's a really interesting year. Like a couple years to like be a a late teenager. Like all your friends are are like, oh, I'm going to go to this college and we're going to do this. And I'm going to major in this and be this and make all this money and be cool. And you're like, well... Uh, I don't know what I'm going to do. My mom definitely like pushed back. Um, It was kind of a learning experience of like, okay, I'm an adult now. Like I need to get my stuff together. When you made that move 
to Arkansas, what other things transitioned in your life? Well, I guess at that point, I still played sports and I definitely still played disc golf. But I remember, so I lived in Arkansas for two years. It was like 2007 or 8, 2010. And I played disc golf maybe probably like about once a week, I would say, at that point. And I remember at the time I was... Just for fun. Yeah, like just Mm -hmm. for fun. But I played with my ex-girlfriend, like she played as well. Um, And we'd play courses and stuff. And I still loved disc golf. And I played a lot of basketball then at that Mm -hmm. point as well and played like intramural basketball. And then I played like in a wood bat baseball league when I lived there too. So I was like, just, that's kind of what I did was You were just kind of existing and playing sports and kind of living the life as a college kid. And did you have, you know, I guess you said you were trying to find yourself when you were in late high school, you took the year off. Now you're in community college trying to find yourself. What is the next level of that? What did you find there? My ex-girlfriend, her father, he actually gave me a book and it's called A Man's Search for Meaning. And it's uh, written by this this guy. His name is Victor E. Frankel. And okay. I think he's Polish. He was Jewish. And he was in World War II in a, a camp. And so this book deals with his search for, you know, whatever meaning he could find. And for him, it was God. And so he, like, searched for that, and that's what kept him alive. And so... I started reading books, but that book's always stuck with me. And I actually bought that book for Castro this last season. Oh, did you really? Season. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And so it like helped me kind of find out what it is in life that I want, um, you know, kind of what makes me tick. So you began like the process of self-actualization. Yeah. You know, and I, I think it's such an interesting concept for a kid who goes through school their whole life and they're being told what to do, told what to do and forced to learn. Especially when we were kids, you know, we probably didn't have laptops in the classroom. Like it was all Not like all. memorized regurgitate. I read a lot of books too now. And it was like the moment I finally sat down and, and opened a book on my own time and started absorbing the information. It was like this liberating feeling. Yeah. It's like you want to learn. It's like you can't yeah. get enough of, you just want information. And um, I remember, yeah, yeah, and I would read like self-help books. The people that we stay with now in uh, Kings Mountain, the Anselmo family, Anthony's father is a professor at Winthrop, and he's a psychology professor. And we were talking about, I guess, in the the easiest way to explain it, kind of like optimism. You know, like say if you. Um, we're playing disc golf and a disc golfer, they throw their drive and they can't see if it's out of bounds or not. There's no spotter. You know, some disc golfers walk up the fairway expecting it to be out of bounds, you know, and they might do that because if they're optimistic and think that they're in bounds, they don't want that let down. They're afraid of that. I'm usually optimistic. If I get down there and I see that it's out of bounds, okay, that sucks. It's out of bounds. I spent five seconds thinking about something bad that happened. Then I can move on. But the person who was pessimistic the entire way up the fairway just spent five minutes in a bad head space. Stewing over yeah. something that might not have even happened. Right. Yeah. And so we, we talk about these things. And I remember reading a book back at this time because I used to be kind of an, kind of an angry kid. And I would like okay. have to like learn how to control that and like be positive. And it's something that you learn, you know, being positive. Yeah. I remember I would like, if I'd have a negative thought, I'd like keep a rubber band on my wrist and like snap it. You know, that's what this book kind of taught me. You you tried like Pavlovian. Yeah. Wow. That's great. Yeah. And so it was, it was an interesting thing. And I feel like where I'm at now, and a lot of people like see that and they say, you know, Chris is a cool guy and he's, you know, positive and stuff, but it's something that I've had to learn and that you constantly have to work at. What you just said resonates with me because I was also categorized as colorful and then and then I moved forward in life and I was like why why do I feel angry you know and right I I went through a similar concept the moment I started reading it was like whoa you know it's almost like you find the right book and it starts calling you out for all these little fallacies in your thinking and you're like it's it's an ego check you know where did that uh you know beginning to learn this optimism and beginning to learn this uh self-actualization where did that begin to take you So basically, um, when I I started reading these books and everything, and so at the time with this girl that I was living with, um, we kind of, I guess the easiest way to say it is like we kind of were going down different paths. And so I moved back to Joplin um, and I lived with my dad for like a year or so, maybe like six months. But I definitely like 
found myself like kind of in a different different headspace than I'd ever been before. And when I moved back to Joplin in 2010, it was like the fall. And I remember I would I was going back out to my home course and I was playing a lot. And then I met some guys uh, who were the the president now of the Joplin Disc Golf Club and they like invited me to go to league. And so then I kind of went to my first league and then they were like, hey, we're going to play this tournament, man. You want to do that? And then I'm like, sure, I'll do that. And then it just kind of grew from there. And then I just started doing field work like over anything. And I enjoyed being by myself mm-hmm. and like practicing just solely for like Tuesday night doubles league, you know? So I had like an ultra focus on this thing. And at the time, like I didn't think it would turn into anything. Like I didn't even think about that in general. I was just thinking about like being the best, you know, disc golfer I could be. But then like when I moved back, I remember my stepmother, she was a teacher for like 30 years and she was a librarian in schools. And she was like, you've always been good with your little brothers. There's this camp that they have for people with developmental disabilities. Mm-hmm. You should look into that. And so I did. And that was definitely like a, a life-changing experience. And that like set up like the next 10 years of my life. Really? Mm-hmm. How long were you at the camp for? Did you just do it for one year? Yeah. Or? Yeah. The camp, it was like, it was just a summer thing. Mm-hmm. So it was like two and a half months or something. And a couple of my friends were working it too. And at this time, I think I was like 20. So I was assigned just one 14-year-old kid who had Asperger's, mm-hmm. which is like a mild form of autism. He mostly had trouble with like reading social cues yeah. and things like that and kind of like anger issues. Of course, like gets overwhelmed easily. Yes. And Yeah, I understand. Yeah. I did that and I was like, this doesn't feel like work. Like I've, you know, worked at a bowling alley when I was younger and worked at Hollister, like mm-hmm. a bunch of different, you know, high school you jobs. You would lo- work at Hollister. Know, wow. All right. And we were called models. Like that was your job title. <laughs> I know it's a joke. I guess I hadn't thought about it before, but I was like, yeah, this is awesome. Like I, I started to kind of figure out that I liked working with people and kind of like helping people. Cause I think that in a way, like it, I kind of helped myself become a better person. And so like, I wanted to be able to do that for other people. And then in turn, like it helped me. I also was an aide for a a summer Mm -hmm. for a kid with autism and the amount of patience you have to have to, to, to step back and understand like, okay, like they're not doing this to hurt me at all. You know, they're not trying to to harm anyone. They're just overwhelmed. And mm-hmm. it's definitely an experience that can humble you in a way and, and oh, teach yeah. you quite a bit. And and you said it sets you up for the next 10 years of your life. What does that mean? So I did that. I did that summer camp. And then with the same company, I was like, hey, I should do this, you know, full time. Mm-hmm. And so I got a job with them. And basically my job, when you kind of first start there, there are a lot of younger people. So 20 year olds, 21 year olds who kind of start and I would be assigned houses, you know, like house 725. And it was three guys who were living there together and they could have, you know, they could have down syndrome or they could be super obese. Like it, you know, they just needed assistance with living. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so I had a couple different houses that I, I worked at and you know, I really enjoyed it. And then basically I was at the company for so long because it's kind of a job with like a high turnover rate. It's easy to get the job, but then, you know, probably six or seven people out of 10 are like, yeah, this isn't for me. You can have some really rough experiences if you have some clients that are, you know, uh, maybe a little uh, impulsive, I guess to say. Yeah. Yeah. Like almost anything can happen. So I worked at one specific house, I ended up working there until like, I want to say 2014 or 2015. So like for three or four years, I was at this same house and, you know, it was awesome. And then I met a girl again and moved to Kansas City. And so in like this, this span of time from like 2010 until 2015, I moved from Kansas City. I started off like I think my first rating in disc golf was probably like 920 or something yeah, like you played, that. You played advanced right away. Yes. And I think my first tournament was probably 2011. Mm-hmm. It um, was November of 2011. Yeah. C-tier. Yep. Yeah. And actually, my first tournament ever was in 2007. Unset, like you didn't have a membership? No, it was, no. I, uh, yeah, maybe I didn't have a mm-hmm. membership. I don't think I did. But I played rec 
at the four states open, which is like the A tier now that I've won twice now. Uh -huh. um, but I, I think at that time it was a B tier and I think I got second and wreck. Then I didn't play another tournament until 2011. So it was just like an impulsive, like, eh, I'm going to step yeah, on the... Yeah, like my buddies were like, yeah, man, we're going to play it. And I was like, okay. Grab your orc. <laughs> yeah. It's time to go. I was like, all right, I guess I'll be there. Yeah. So then, I mean, so, so you did start playing disc golf with a PDGA membership. So you consciously said, I am going to be a tournament player now. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, you get charged like 10 bucks, you know, if you're playing a sanctioned yeah, tournament. Really and I was you, like, huh? I was like, well, I guess I'll sign up, whatever. Yeah. You play the one tournament. Now I'm going off of memory here. You played advanced pretty much the entire year in 2012, I believe. Yeah, that yeah. sounds right. Yeah, and then you played, I believe, Am Worlds 2013. 13. Okay. Yep. Do you remember any tournaments that stood out to you your very first year? And again, I think it's pretty commendable that you played advanced right away. What was your game like at that time? Actually, there's a video on YouTube of my form, and this was probably back 2010. 2011 it was pretty terrible but my game at that point i threw no forehands i did throw thumbers with the z flick coming from baseball and like i used that quite a bit honestly i think i threw like a first run boss back then i threw eagles in 2012 and then i remember i remember the first time i threw a fairway driver and it was a star eagle and I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, it's a real game changer once you find yes. a driver that can go straight. Because, yes. you know, the distance that drivers doesn't, like, are like... skip really far. Uh -huh. And you can throw it. At that point, I was throwing it, you know, on a 325-foot hole. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God, dude. Like, this is awesome. It's so interesting that, you know, <laughs> you mentioned that you had all these really nice kind of discs fitting in the middle of your game. You kind of had this nice lineup already starting out. Like, you had a buzz. Yeah. Your, it sounds like your beefiest disc was well, like... Yeah, and it, did you I do think, research? No, like especially at first, it was my friend who knew more, and he's always thrown a comet. Okay, so that was Good that boy. was the thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that was the thing that we all you know got into. And now you know, being sponsored by DD, like all my friends, like we talk about the fuse, and then my buddy's like, I still throw a comet, man. Yeah, and I'm like, yeah, that's cool. But I really didn't do any research until like 2011, probably that fall when i played my first tournament i remember i would go on disc golf course review uh-huh and read all the time and watch disc golf monthly before bed every night oh classic i yeah. love how their their uh, production quality is very similar to how it was you know in yeah. 2011 it still is i yeah. love it moving forward into disc golf so you did play open in 2013. Yeah, but I don't think I accepted cash so I could play in Am Worlds. Was that a strategy to just prepare yourself for Am Worlds? Like, was that season, like, you know, the season you were fixated on getting into Am Worlds or? So in Southwest Missouri, there's a guy called the Disc Golf Monkey. A lot of people in the Midwest will know him. He's out of Springfield, Missouri. Um, but we would play a lot of his tournaments and they were B and C tiers. But a lot of the people who were out of Springfield, they would play in open but they could be anywhere from like 875 to like 930 rated. And so I was like, well, I guess I should probably be playing open then. And Kyle Webster was in oh, Joplin. Kyle, what yeah, a guy. He was playing in Joplin at that point. And so we like battled. And so whatever division he was playing in, I was playing in. Okay. And I think in 2014, he actually like went and toured with Shoestrick. Yeah, for he a did. Bit. He went and toured for quite a few years, actually. He yeah. was on the road. Yeah. And so like we were pushing each other. I definitely wanted to play in Amworld solely because it was in Emporia. Like if it was in New York or something, I probably wouldn't have played it at that point. But you did. And yeah. you ended up getting fourth place. Yeah, that I was on lead card almost ho the whole week until the the last round. I dropped a second card and then I tied with a dude, Aaron Walther, who's a lefty mm -hmm. from St. Louis. Yeah, and we had to play off at a hole one at Jones East, and I moved forward with the par. He bogeyed it. He missed like a fifteen footer. Oh, Aaron. and so I got to play in the final nine. You know, with the top four people. Yeah, and I think like after I tapped out. Eric McCabe, like, gave me a ride in the golf cart up to the, you know, like, where hole one was after I tapped out on 18. I remember thinking, like, after that tournament, I was like, I'm better than most people at this, yeah. you know, for where I'm at. And I want to, like, continue to get better. So, so was that when you said I'm better than most of these people, 
did you mean like you you were outplaying them like you thought your skill set kind of outclassed a lot of these people or did you feel like you were better at scoring i think that i thought i am better than like you know 95 of the percent of I like see. the people who play disc golf I so see. i was like i could probably start playing an open you know what? like it was a confidence booster i see let's move in to 20 so for actually before go ahead. we move on okay in that last round that I played before I had to play off, I played with Calvin Heimberg and Aaron Doyle. Did you really? Yes. What was Calvin like back then? I don't remember. <laughs> I'll ask him when I get him on the show. I mean, he he probably didn't say a word. <laughs> yeah, yeah. More I than would likely. imagine, and I'm pretty sure his dad was following. I remember our class because it was like a good class mm -hmm. of golfers. Did you remember thinking like, oh, crap, like this kid's good? I don't know. Like he didn't stand out at the time. Okay. So I don't think. Interesting. But he was probably really young then. Yeah. Because now he's, what, like 25 or something along the lines something. of that. So at yeah. that point, he was probably like 17. You instantly move up to open. You played one doubles amateur tournament. But then the rest of the season was open and you cashed at pretty much every event. What was starting to evolve for you as a player? So at that point, I remember it was kind of a lot of the courses I had played before. And so I had like a good game plan. I remember at that point. So at Worlds in 2013, I think that's when I kind of first started throwing a forehand. Because I remember throwing a forehand a oh, couple times. Oh, you were times. backhand dominant. Back yeah, then. very much so. Wow. I remember throwing like a turnover comet on a shot. And people were like, whoa, man, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, you can get it to go left. Whoa. Right, right. Yeah. And so I would practice like crazy like i would go out to the course and i would just throw for two hours while i would see groups show up and play the whole course and then they go home and i'd still be practicing on the same hole on the same basket i just kind of fell in love with practicing and getting better and practicing with the, with the forehand especially yeah yeah i started to practice that and i remember when i first started doing it i was like man there's no way i'm gonna throw this at league and then I threw it at league a couple of times. I'm like, there's no way I'm going to throw this in a tournament. <laughs> and then I do it. What were you practicing with, like disc-wise? Do you remember, like, uh, what shaped your forehand initially? I remember I threw a buzz a little bit because I had read, Sick. like, that was a good thing to do. But I threw, like, probably Destroyers a lot and Z Flicks and Firebirds a lot. So I was throwing pretty overstable, overstable stuff. stuff. Okay. Your forehand is surpassed. I mean, your backhand is very good, but like right. your forehand does a lot for you yeah. right now. So yeah. talk to me about like grinding forehand fieldwork practice. Like did, did you ever hurt yourself? No. And I think it was like the years of baseball. Like I knew yeah. when to stop. So I moved to Kansas City in 2015 and I would practice all the time at Rosedale. And I remember at the time I had like an old... Uh, lucid trespass in my bag and that was like my bomber or like mm -hmm. long turnover disc mm -hmm. and so I remember like learning how to hyzer flip that mm -hmm. and that's when my forehand started to go like 450 you started getting some clean like yeah. flip on the disc and it and... would like flip in full flight and I was like dude why is that going really far and further than my backhands and that's when I like started to figure out mm -hmm. you know like how to throw big forehands I mean, we see it almost every weekend. There's a lot of holes where if we didn't have the sidearms that we had, you know. It'd be tough. We better be Nathan Queen. At, Ex at that exactly. Point, I think I kind of went through a similar process learning the sidearm. You're like, man, this is kind of almost cheating. Like, yeah. it's so it's like, easy. This is easy. Yeah, you can see the target now. You can yep. just crash one out and let it die back in. So you started winning in 2015. And... You know, were you starting to already get the little voice in the back of your head like, hey, man, like you ever thought about living in your car and playing Frisbee golf all the uh, time? A, a little bit. So at Worlds in 2013, I remember after that, um, I talked to one of my buddies and he wanted to play amateur world doubles in Texas. And that wasn't until the spring of 2014. And so I told myself, I was like, when that tournament's over, I'm going pro. I'm accepting cash. That's what I'm doing. And I remember while we were at Amateur World Doubles, uh, Latitude 64 had like an open, pretty much like, hey, who wants to be sponsored? Like we're doing Latitude 64 USA now. And so I wrote them a letter mm -hmm. and it was to Dave Feldberg. And I talked about like my fourth place at Amateur Worlds. And then at the very end, I said, I want to be the best left-handed player in the world. 
and I knew like Devin Owens would see it and he was on mm-hmm. Latitude, but I figured that would stand out. But that was my goal because yeah. I was like, this is a feasible goal. Like mm-hmm. I might not be able to ever be the greatest player ever or like Paul McBeth, mm-hmm. but I could be the best left-handed player ever because there's only like two of us. Anyone listening out here that's right-handed, just close your eyes, think of your favorite course or the hardest course you ever played, and then think about the exact mirror image and having to play that. Yeah. that We don't get to play the same game that the righties no. play. And it's not like we're, we're these big victims, you know, because we, we, we adapt around it. Right. You know, but whenever I get to play with you or Nathan or Reed, it feels really nice to, to be able to watch someone play the same game that I'm playing, like throw the same lines that I'm throwing. Yes. A lot of times we don't get to mimic lines off anybody either. No, no. So I, I think it's a very feasible goal to have. Yeah. You know, when we practiced together in Nashville and it was nice, I was like, dude, I never practiced with lefties. Like, I should be doing that more, man. You wrote Felberg about being the best lefty. You made a pretty bold statement and yeah. you're starting to play well. Right. So I wrote him, this was probably... March, I think of 2014. And so I took a trip with my best friend and we went to see my other best friend. These are the group of guys who I started playing disc golf with. And we went to California. My friend, um, he was living probably 20 minutes from La Mirada at the time and like 40 minutes from Oak Grove. And so this was, I think, in May of that same year. And I will never forget this day because we were going to play Oak Grove, which is the first like course with targets yeah. in the U.S. And on our way there, I got the email that I had made the team. So it was like a day I'll never forget. And I started like tearing up in the backseat and I was like, guys, look at this. You know, it's like it's a message from Dave Feldberg. Like I'm a sponsored disc golfer and they're like no way and you all freaked out and yeah was, yeah yeah it was an awesome day so i'm glad that you you like ex- experienced that and like absorbed it and yeah. like viewed it as kind of like a poetic yeah, thing you it know was like awesome. all your life had led up to this really cool moment you mm-hmm. know where you get to play a game you love and have someone support you behind right it, you know what wheels started turning in your head when that happened so that was like in 2014 and that summer, like I, I practiced super hard, but I remember Kyle Webster, like he was living in Joplin at the time. So I started working overnights at that job at the home that I worked at. And so I would go in at 11 o'clock and get off at 9am. So I would work overnight and then I would practice all day. And then I would hang, go and hang out at Kyle's house and we would hang out and play FIFA and putt and stuff with all of our friends who played disc golf. So my life like so slowly started to turn like away from playing baseball and other things to only disc golf. Mm -hmm. And all my friends, like we all had the same goal and that was to be as good as we could at disc golf. And so like that pushed me. um, And so I didn't have things pulling me away from what I was trying to do. You didn't have other groups of friends at the time that were like, hey, you want to go out drinking? Hey, you want to go out? You want to go to the bar and play darts? You want to join a bowling league, you know? Right, like we didn't do any of that. It was just disc golf all the time. That's pretty much an optimal environment to grow. Yes. That's amazing. 100%. I I have to ask, because you'd mentioned this to me, and I I hate to go on a quick side tangent. I need to know. Mm -hmm. You told me at Cedar Hill that you worked at a soap factory. Where did that come in? (laughs) Just real quick, give okay. me it. Yeah. I need to hear it. Okay, so this is about that time frame. So in 2015, I met met a girl, and she was going to Kansas City, to UM, the University of Missouri, Kansas City, to uh, medical school. And so my one of my other good friends, the one who I visited in California, mm-hmm. he moved to Kansas City. And so I had already like lived in Arkansas, which was like an hour south of Joplin where I grew up. And I was in Joplin at the time living. And I was like, I want to move to Kansas City. Like, I think that's it's a great opportunity. The disc golf is amazing there. There's a disc golf store there. Big shout out to Kansas City Disc Golf. Yes. Super good. So I moved and I remember when I first like I didn't really have like a job or anything lined up. I was like, "Uh, I'll get a job in healthcare. Like that won't be that hard. I have experience and so I moved and I applied a little bit but then my friend who I lived with my best friend and his girlfriend she worked at a soap factory and so she was like do you want me to get you a job here you know while you're looking and I was like yeah sure and so this place is called Indigo Wild and it's actually like all over the U.S. and like health kind of health food stores and Mm -hmm. stuff like that and they have like the bar soap if you walk by 
the kiosk, you will smell it. Yeah, it was it was super cool. And I did that for like probably like nine months until I found a job in healthcare. And I actually started to work with people with dementia okay. and Alzheimer's at that point. So it was kind of like a switch um, from what I did before. Okay. But the soap factory was super cool. Good times. Yeah, it was it was super fun. What was unique about working there? There was like the main building uh-huh. in which they made all like the bar soap. And they made like a bunch of different stuff. But where I worked was basically like the liquid factory. And there was a head saponificationist. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's like a soap maker, basically. Wow. What a, what a title to have. Yes. And so she, she um, specialized in this. And there was only like, it was her and like three, three of us. Or maybe four of us total, including me. And we kind of had free reign over the place and kind of like did whatever we want. But she would make huge batches of like laundry soap and um, and kind of like just liquid soaps. And so it was it was a pretty cool environment to work at. One day I brought in a because uh, the buddies that I worked with, they were all kind of my age, like yeah. mid 20s. And, you know, a couple of them were in a band. One like was super into biking, like he would race and stuff on his bike, um, like road race. And I told him, like, I disc golfed. And one of them had, like, played before. Uh-huh. And then I was like, no, dude, check out this video. Like, I'm in this video. And they're like, dang, so you're good. And we actually all went and played together one day. But I brought, like, a catch frisbee. And I think it was a, it was a beetle or it was a bite. Sweet. Okay. And, and so the, the place was so big and so, mm-hmm. like, there was nobody in there. Yeah. So we could, like, throw it around a little bit. So I'd just be, like, sitting there working. Then my buddy would be like, hey, man. And he'd just throw me the disc. It was pretty cool. That's everything that I would want the Soap Factory to be. At that point in your life, were you starting to scheme about touring? When when did that idea start to come across your mind? While I was working at the Soap Factory, I started to work at Dynamic Discs Kansas City. And I worked there on Mondays only with Josh Harvey, one of my best friends. and you know, like I, I enjoyed it and it was awesome. I was playing a bunch of tournaments in Kansas City and then I left the soap factory and started working another job. But I think that 2017, I got third at GBO and it was cut short because of rain the last day. Wow. And so like, I think Paul or Sexton won? Paul McBeth won, Sexton got second. Yes. And then I tied for third with, I think, Ricky Simon. and Simon. Yeah. And so that wow. was, I was like, holy crap. Like. And I remember playing that round at Jones East, like I just went off. Yeah. And I remember I was just making tons of putts and I played it with Nate Doss and Eric McCabe and they were like rooting me on. They were like, yeah, dude, keep going. And so I remember I finally like looked at the scores when I'd finished and I was like, dude, I'm in third. Like, this is insane. You know, it's like something that you practice and you, you dream about, but that was like my first big taste of like a huge tournament and what it took to to play well at those tournaments yeah and then they like called the next day i was like well it's not the worst thing that ever happened you know i get third yeah yeah exactly (laughs) because what are the chances i'm gonna play that well again yeah especially in the rain and the cold oh my god dude yeah it was kind of an eye opener and that was in 2017 and then i went on to um i think win an eight here and i think i had won one already in 2016 but I won in 2017 and like played really well and then played really well at USDGC. And that was my first year at USDGC. I think I tied Eagle and Simon again in like 19th or 20th place. So during 2017, I was still sponsored by Latitude 64. And after that happened, like I was talking with the girl that I was with at the time, the girl who was going to medical school, she was like pushing me to basically go to school, get like a nursing degree or something like that. And I was like, I wanted to do that, uh-huh. but I was like, I felt that would have been the end of disc golf for me. Mm-hmm. And so I started to like look at disc golf and I was like, look at what I like, you know, I made some money this year doing this and I enjoy it. And then I think it was at the end of 2017, I was like, I am going to try to tour next year. Like I'm going to quit my job and go out because Jordan Castro had already done it a little bit. And he was like, do you want to go? And I was like, yes, I do. Was there any pushback again? I'm talking about pushback, like people close to you. What what was that when you made up your mind? So, <laughs> well, this is kind of personal. Okay. But I'm fine with sharing it. So my girlfriend at the time, mm-hmm. who was in medical school, she picked me up from the airport when I flew back from USDGC. Mm-hmm. 
And so the only way I got to go to USDGC was because of Pete Cashin in Kansas City. He was like, I will send you there. I want you to play it. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. I don't know how else I was going to get there. When that girl picked me up from the airport, Mm -hmm. she was like, yeah, this isn't working. Like on the car ride home, like I had no idea. And so then we spent, you know, the next like couple weeks like breaking up or whatever. And like that is when I kind of made up my mind. You were like, all right, that's the good omen that I needed. Yeah. I was like, this, this is it. You know, in that off season, you know, when players like talk about contracts with their, their sponsors, you know, it's usually in like November or Mm -hmm. something like that. And we talk about it. And I remember I was like talking with Latitude and I had known what some of my basically peers um, were getting. And so I was like, that's what I'm going to ask for. Like if it's, you know, entry fees paid for like 500 bucks, you know, to use for entry fees per month or whatever. Like, I just want to go out on the road. I'll figure it out. Exactly. I went to like Latitude and stuff and we were like talking about things. And I think at that point they were like, I don't know if they were like in a weird space or like they were concentrated more on like the European team, I think. And I don't know if they were, they thought I was like serious about like touring, you know, since I'd never done it before. Yeah, it's hard for them to know. Like you can say that you want all this stuff, you know. Exactly. And they probably deal with people going out for two months and then going back home. Exactly. And so like, I kind of talked to Latitude and then like, I was working at DD and I like felt, I kind of felt like I belonged with DD. Like they just made sense to me. Yeah, and so I, like, talked to Rusko and stuff like that, and he, like, talked to Berglund at Latitude, and they, like, figured out a way for me to transfer. And and then there you go. Yeah, and Rusko was like, yeah, I mean, we want you to be on tour. Like, we'll help you make it happen. You know, in 2018, it was definitely a weird year, and it was really, it was tough, man. Like, I didn't play very good golf at all that year, but it was, like, just a total learning experience. Not not great finishes you know just being on tour it's a different beast it, playing it, it against totally the is. best players in the world on the hardest courses every single week and no matter how you're feeling yeah you know if you're local you can be like well i there's this c tier in three weeks and i'm really have, good at that course yeah so I'm gonna i go have do that yeah and i can go and practice it every day i can you know be in my thing but this was my first year learning how to tour, learning how to like live, find manage your time when there's yeah. all, literally all this time and everyone's like, oh, why don't you just play disc golf all day? Like you're supposed to because you're a disc golfer. It doesn't work like that. Right. Right. Yeah. And you have to like learn things. And so, yeah, it was like definitely a learning experience mm-hmm. 2018, but it was awesome. And it kind of set me up for the next couple of years for sure. I think the biggest thing, like you said, is you get kicked out on the road and you feel like, okay, this is pretty liberating. This is pretty cool. I have all this freedom now. Oh, crap. What do I do? <laughs> You're yeah. like, oh, my God. So then, yeah, the time management and, like, you know, how much to practice, you know, staying in shape, how to eat well on the road and mm-hmm. stay healthy. We're not the type of pro athletes that have nutritionists following us around. Right. We don't have people that are telling us what workouts to do, what warm-ups to do. Now we have Seth, who's, you know, helping a lot of players do mm-hmm. that which is great. Shout outs to Seth Munsey. But yeah, it's, it's a really interesting uh, uh, learning curve that I think uh, when you look at these people who have been on the road for a decade plus. Yeah, Yuli and Colling. And, and Macbeth and yeah. Paige. And it's pretty mind-boggling that they've been able to do it. But I, I guess you kind of have to learn it and stick with, a, with whatever works for you. Did you ever get burnt out at all during 2018 season? Or were you still pretty much riding the high? I don't think I was burnt out. So in 2018, like as I go back to the fall of 2017, me and that girl broke up Mm -hmm. and then I met my girlfriend now, Mm -hmm. Kayla, you know, in the wintertime. So it was like, it was a weird, pretty like emotional thing for me. And Mm so going on the road in 2018 and for the first time, like just dealing with, you know, being lonely, you know, and, and dealing with like just different emotions and stuff. And not playing very well Mm -hmm. like that's a that's a hard hard thing to do you know when you have a nice like nine to five job and you're making steady income especially when you have a job that's not this like high octane crazy stress all the time job it's pretty easy to avoid a lot of bad emotion you know it's pretty easy to to live kind of a cushy life you have your apartment or a house and you have like all your amenities met and then you get on the road and you work for every dime that you make yeah. And there's no, you know, unless you're the best player in the world, which is earned, right. you know, we make money, but a lot of the money that we make is because of us, you know, right. and it's a blessing it's, when we get extra money coming in. Right. And especially that first season, like I, you know, the guaranteed money 
it wasn't really there. Yeah. And so it was money that I had to earn. I had to play well in a tournament. You know, I had to use my allotment to make discs with my stamp on and them and sell then them. sell them myself. Yeah. So it was it was kind of a learning experience. Yeah. I didn't, you know, in 2017, 2016, mm -hmm. I would play on the weekends. And so if I won a couple hundred bucks, that's great. But I already had my paycheck from my it's extra regular money. job. You can yeah. buy a pair of shoes. You can yeah. go out to eat. Like exactly. life's good. Exactly. But on the road and, you know, especially being, you know, a new touring golfer and unproven, like you don't really have a lot and it's tough. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I know. You know, you play all these big events, you transition into the off, you know, quote unquote off season. And I know, I'm pretty sure this was the year that you talked about. You went pretty hard that, that off season, correct? And like between 2018 and 2019? Yeah. Yeah. What changed for you? I think that I was in a better mental state. Okay. I was in a better place with my relationship and... I kind of found out what it took mm -hmm. to be good. Everything was so new in 2018. Like mm -hmm. my entire life was. Yeah. My relationship was new. All the courses were new. Um, People were new. Yeah. Sponsor expectations yeah, are new. All the experiences, like everything was new. You know, and so I kind of took that in and I had to kind of think about what I needed to work on. And I remember in 2018, because I was throwing some big forehands, like mm -hmm. I leaned on my forehand way too much. I was throwing it so much. And then I was like, dude, why? Like, just because it's good, like, doesn't mean you're scoring any better than you could throw on a backhand. And so then I kind of, I was like, dude, be you. Like, be who, what got you here. You don't have to throw as far as freaking Anthony Barella. I think I just got more comfortable. Um, just learned the ropes, played, you know, my first time at Milo was 2018. So then the next year I come back, it's like, okay, I've already played this tournament. It's a hard course for yeah, lefties, yeah. man. And I was like, I know what it takes now. And I used what I learned in 2018, and that's yeah. all you can do. Yeah. So you started throwing a little bit more backhand, is what yes. you're pretty much saying. You you kind of refined the backhand again, and it looks great, by the way. It looks Thank fantastic. You. Lots of respect for it. I think, you know, weirdly enough, being lefty, I went through the same yeah. Same deal. And I think I'm more of a technical sidearm player. You're more of a distance sidearm player. Yep. You have great touch, but I'm saying like, you know, your strength is, yes. is something Definitely that I the power. want more. The backhand just has such a high skill ceiling and mm -hmm. you can get so good with it. And I, yeah. I think it's definitely an evolution that is necessary for any disc golfer. Like we, I don't think we've ever seen besides Sarah Hokum in 2012, a sidearm dominant world champion. Yeah. There just, hasn't been one. It, there's so many more things you can do with a backhand. You like know, nose so, angle control yeah. and landing it softly and right. distance and spin. Right. At, at some point with the forehand, you have to get you have to be so precise with it to like get the angle right, get the speed right. Lots of respect for Germ and how he's been able to do it as right. long as he has. It's it's ridiculous. Yeah. And that's why he's so good because he does have that like super touchy good forehand. And I mean, he can still throw it really far. Oh, yeah. But he has that far backhand, too. Exactly. You know, he has a lot of tools. I want to talk about 2019. I want to kind of wrap this podcast up. I'm looking at your stats and you cashed at every... I think I've cashed at every event since event. Uh, Oregon last year. Yeah. You've cashed yeah. at every event so far. So you found that consistency. And like you mm -hmm. said, you've kind of gone back to your game of just golfing the way you know you can golf, not forcing as much as you used to. Right. Walk me through USDGC 2019. I remember in the kind of the middle of 2019, yeah, I started to lean on my backhand a lot more, and we started playing more woods uh, golf as the season went on. And I think at Worlds, I was on lead card at one point, and I ended up getting like 11th or 12th there and played really well. And so I was gaining confidence. And so for USDGC, we went and stayed with the Anselmos like we are now, and I practiced the course for a week and a half before the actual tournament. Okay, you, you didn't play anything like nope. a week prior. Right. And so me and Jordan, we went and we practiced every single day. And in tw so my first year there was 2017 and then 2018, and I think I got 20th and then 19th. And so it's a pretty good lefty course. And so like I had confidence there. Yeah. And I felt like it sets up great for my game. Throwing to the big part of the fairway, not taking risks, take your par if you have to, and then throw to the big part of the green and make a putt. Mm -hmm. and I trust in my putt, and I'm very comfortable being from the Midwest and open with wind. Like, mm -hmm. that doesn't bother me at all. I don't like trees. So USDGC, like, I remember thinking 
we had all these practice rounds and I remember like two days before the tournament, I'm like, I'm ready. Like, you know, I remember in 2018, I was like, man, I want more practice days because they're fun and they're not stressful. But I remember specifically for USDGC last year, I was just like, I'm ready. Like, I want to go. Mm-hmm. I've practiced enough. I'm ready. Yeah. And I remember the first day, I think I played pretty early and shot eight under. It ended up being the hot round. It's a solid round. You you did yeah. what you needed to do. You managed on the tough holes. Yeah, it was. And the course was definitely different than it was this year. Um, you know, it's definitely playing harder. There were a lot more holes like hole nine this year mm-hmm. that you could take a 10 on. Yeah. And so for me, I felt like that helped me because mm-hmm. I was like, I'm not going to do that. You're just going to throw I'll, the fat part I'll of the I'll take fairway. a bogey if I have to. Yeah. Like, I'm going to not get a freaking triple bogey because that'll ruin my tournament. And mm-hmm. so I just played really, really well that first day. And I was like, that was good. And then it ended up being in the lead. And I was like, all right, like, I can do that again. And then uh, the second round, I shot the exact same thing. And I was like, all right. And so at that point, I think, I think like Terry Miller like ended up calling me that night and we like had a little conversation. He's like, are you freaking, you know, are you freaking out? How are you handling this? And I'm like, I don't know. And then I remember, I think I was definitely dehydrated the third round. I remember warming up and like 20 minutes into my warm up, I was like, oh my God, like I have, Lightheaded. A, I have a headache. Like I feel terrible. And now looking back on it, yeah, I was definitely like dehydrated. <laughs> I think I um, ended up shooting even that round, which wasn't terrible, but it definitely wasn't what I, I wanted to do. And I remember walking up the fairway on 18 and i was like jordan like do you have any water man do you have any food like i was just done dude wow yeah and so i was like all right like go and reset and come back for the final day did that give you any fuel like did that even kind of set you into focus a little Um, bit more that that night yeah i think so like i concentrated on like taking care care of my body a little better and then yeah for the final day like the winds kind of changed it got cooler it wasn't 95 like it was all week. That was oh another thing. Gosh. For the, the entire week and a half that we practiced, it was like 95. I was chugging Pedialyte like yeah. all week. Yeah, and that's something that I do now that I learned from mm-hmm. that tournament. And I started out pretty well. I was on the second card, and I made like some big putts um, to save par. Basically, mm-hmm. I think like three jumpers in the first six holes to Which save par. terrifying on that course. Yeah. I remember like, I don't know, 13 or 14 holes through. I was like, well, like at that point, I wasn't thinking about winning. I actually didn't think about winning until... 13 and 14 holes through the final round. Yeah, like I had no idea where I was at. So you didn't check U-disc or anything? No. Okay. And I think when we started the round, James... So I shot... I was 16 under and James was at 20 or 19 when we started the round. Mm -hmm. And I was only like two under through like nine or 10 holes or something like that. And I was like, there's no way... That James is shooting this bad. Like, I it didn't even cross my mind. I was uh-huh. like, but I'm playing okay. I'm saving my part, so I'm not going to look at you this. I don't mm-hmm. care. I'm just going to do as good as I can. Mm-hmm. I remember I remember Nico made a big putt on 14, and he was, like, checking scores. And I was like, oh, like, he might be kind of close, but I'm kind of close to him. Mm-hmm. But I was like, I don't care. Like, I didn't think about it. Still didn't check. I still didn't check. And so on 15, I remember I missed the Mando, and then I decided to throw over the top because I... Like Tomahawk? Uh, no, I threw a big forehand over the top because I didn't want to... Last year, the drop zone was like 70 feet from the trees. It was a, it was a wild drop zone. Yeah, and I was like, dude, I don't want a big number. If I hit one of those trees, I get a six or a seven. I was like, all if I throw a really awesome shot and have a jump putt, I might be able to save my part. Or if I'm taking a bogey. So I bogeyed 15, and then I remember I made a putt on 16 like a 25 footer for birdie and i remember coming up on 17 and nothing it crossed my mind it's always a long walk and you think about it and i think at this point i had never missed the island in my career yeah it's such a you, you take that like it's distance control putter you know you yeah. just chuck it out there flat yeah. and like i was throwing a harp um and i practiced it really well i'd thrown it well all week mm-hmm. and but the wind was different that day and it was like a headwind and i remember i threw my harp and I just kind of like, I didn't, I threw with a lot of hyzer because of the headwind and I thought it'd flip up a little bit and it just kind of, I didn't throw it hard enough and it just hyzered. And so I was like, all right, you know, whatever. So I think I grabbed my justice second and I think I did the same thing. Um, Started off again on accident and kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was such a headwind and I was like, this will flip up. I don't want to go in the water. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, okay, well, I've come up short. I'm going to throw my triple X and 
And I threw that long. It like went probably four or five feet long in the water. Third OB. Yeah. Oh my God. And so I was like, okay, well now I go to the drop zone. Like I knew the rule. And so I, I went back. I remember turning around after that final one and I looked at Jordan and he was just like, he, he had like a ghost stare on his face. And I was like, what did I just do? And so I was like, hey, can I see your phone? Can I see the scores? Oh, no. And so I remember all I did when I turned on his phone, I looked at my name and where I was at. And it said I was like in this place. And so, and then I was like, okay. And I think my mind was still going crazy at this point. And then I like went over for like five seconds. I was like, wait, let me see that again. And I was like, oh my God, like. I was in first or like I had it was tied and then for it first. Said like, you know, and then it kind the of, after. and then it kind of like set in and I was like, Whoa. And then like I went and there's a picture of it. I actually have it on my Instagram. Like Joe Mintz took it and I like went over and just kind of sat there for a second. And so then, uh, I went and like got my, I think it was an eight or something like that. And so then I looked at the scores and I knew what I was at. And I was like, well, James still has to play 17, you know, whatever. Like, let's go birdie 18. I didn't, it was never a feeling of like, oh my God, this is horrible. Oh my God, I just blew it. Like, I never, ever felt like that, even though I understood what I just did. And I think it was because like, I was so proud of playing so well that like nothing was going to take that for yeah. me. And I, I was really happy for James. You know, looking back on it now, I was like, yeah, man, just throw it in bounds, dude, and you probably be the U.S. champion right now. You know, yeah. but it didn't happen that way. I, I said the word poetic earlier, but 17 is this very poetic hole in disc golf. And it, yeah. we've watched Johnny McRae you know, yep. blow the championship there. We've seen James almost blow the championship there as well. He almost did last year. Yeah. Yeah. You know, same year that you did, I think. I don't know if they meant for the, the walk to be as long as it was after you tap out on 16, perfect, but I know. And it's got the long road. There's the, the bamboo on the left side. like. And I remember like thinking people were like, dude, why didn't you just throw it in bounds or, you know, this or that? And why it's didn't like, you just throw it in bounds? Well, well, the thing was, is like, I, yes, looking back on it now, and that's, I played the hole differently this year mm -hmm. and I lined up different on the tee pad yeah. to force myself to not throw it out over the water. I was throwing out over the basket and then heisering in and playing it way safe. Yeah. But it wasn't how I practiced it for a week and a half. Yeah. I practiced birdieing that hole. Of course. And so like it's 250. Yes. Yeah. And so yeah, on my second shot on the justice, I was like, all right, let's just throw this in bounds. Mm -hmm. And I messed up. And then the triple X was like, yes, I was trying to throw it in bounds, of course. But like, I don't know. I don't have any regrets about it. I just had a conversation with Yuli yesterday about that hole. He's like that the whole point of the hole is like the pressure. The whole difficulty of the yeah. of the hole is pressure. Right. You know, coming down the stretch, knowing that everybody, you know, especially if you're looking at UDISC scores during your round, people are taking big numbers all day on that hole. Right. It happens. Yep. You know, especially if you have, you know, someone someone on, you know, middle of the leaderboard trying to make a big move, they bogey. I think 15, 16 are scary too, because if you bogey 15 or 16, the pressure on 17 is even greater. Mm -hmm. So you go, go into 18, finish the tournament. Yeah, I don't even know what I got on 18, honestly. Yeah. I probably got a par. But you ended up getting fourth. Yep. This That was your second year touring. Mm -hmm. Second year on tour, you kind of have methodically moved into this as your full-time job and i can tell you love it we played at nashville and i can tell you love it mm -hmm. what is next for you what is your next frontier that's a good question um you know for the last 10 years i guess now uh, my whole goal has been to be the best disc golfer i can be and to always be getting better and i don't think that's going to change but um with how disc golf is moving how it seems like paul Macbeth is like opening new avenues yeah. you know all mm -hmm. the time it, you start to think about different things that you can do and i did in the off season and during our our second off season mm -hmm. i started doing like youtube videos and stuff like mm -hmm. that and i i enjoy doing those things and thought that i would before but then when I tried um, doing it, like it took some getting used to, to like do the videos and stuff. But then I started to like, like it and enjoy it. And I enjoy, you know, doing all those cool, cool things with social media and stuff like that. So like, you know, honestly, I feel like I can kind of do almost anything that I want. Mm -hmm. And I, but ultimately for me, the number one goal is to win 
yeah. and to be um, you know, one of the best players in the world. And I don't think that's ever gonna change. And I think if it does, then it's like, well, maybe I should look for something else to do. The Flight Diary is edited by Lindsay Rodans, music by Johnny Darge. The offseason is officially upon us, and I'm spending it in Nashville, Tennessee for the time being. With that said, there is a lot more podcast content on the way, so be on the lookout for that. Thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week.